born in 1941 in Philadelphia, rooting for the Eagles, but I have a problem whenever the Eagles play Dallas, the Cowboys. I had four pairs of boots in the Army, and you have to keep them shined. So every Sunday, I would shine them, but that's when the Dallas Cowboys were on TV in the fall. So I, shall we say, mated with the Cowboys while I was shining my boots. <laughs> Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Slavic Connection here at ACES 2022. It is a glorious Sunday morning, and me and Misha had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Robert Friedman from Johns Hopkins University. Misha, what were your thoughts? Dr. Friedman is the foremost expert on the Middle East and specifically on Russia in the Middle East. And Russia has stepped up its role beginning in 2015. And it will be interesting to see where it goes. Dr. Friedman addressed the questions that we posed on the Wagner Group's role in Ukraine as well as in, in the Middle East. Russia's role in Libya, in Syria, in Central Asia. It, it was a fascinating discussion. Putin prides himself to be able to talk to everybody. He talks to the Israelis on the one hand, and he talks to Hamas, which is dedicated to the destruction of Israel, on the other hand. So he cooperates with the Saudis because they have a mutual interest in keeping the oil price up. So now they're up. Let's try to keep them up. It's not a typical text. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So we're excited to have Dr. Robert Friedman here. There are so many topics that we could cover with him, so we're just going to dive into to as many as possible. But I, I wanted to thank you first and foremost for agreeing to talk with us. It's my great pleasure. I think just to kick this off, maybe getting your insights on the current war in Ukraine. We saw the, the liberation of Kyrgyzstan and, and, and the Ukrainian armed forces making significant progress and taking back some parts of the country. What is your take on where the war currently is? What are some of your insights on where you think it's going? I mean, well, it's to my mind, it's very clear. The Ukrainians are highly motivated and the Russians are not. And Putin made some horrendous errors at the beginning of the war. I mean, the rational actor theorist would argue that once he convinced Belarus to allow Russian troops to be to move west, essentially, he had scored a big victory by moving the military power of Russia west. He didn't have to invade Ukraine. But now that he's invaded Ukraine and the Russian army has done poorly in many areas, then there's some interesting questions. In my own area, which is Russia and the Middle East, people have to wonder about the quality of Russian weaponry and the superiority of American weaponry and NATO weaponry over Russian weaponry. Now, people always used to say, gee, the Russians had done so well in Syria, but nobody was firing back at them. <laughs> yes. Here you have a highly motivated army armed with the best high-tech weapons firing back at the Russians, and the Russians are losing. And uh, we'll see. The winter is setting in, and the Russians have responded by trying to blow up Ukrainian infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And whether that'll slow down the Ukrainian war effort remains to be seen. If Europe can stay united, which is a very big if, mm -hmm. and rebuilds the infrastructure, then that it's, he's, he's pushed Ukraine totally westward now. So I would expect that uh, Ukraine will have fast-track entry into the EU. Mm -hmm. And my own feeling is, now that the Russians have invaded, it's time to move 
Ukraine into NATO as well. To that point, there's been talks of Russia's role in the UN Security Council, them being a permanent member, also their involvement in some of these international organizations. What is your take on should they continue to be a part of those institutions? What, how do we incorporate Russia into the international world after? You know, of course, as you know, at Yalta, back in 1945, the Russians got the veto power at the UN, so you can't kick them out. Right. <laughs> uh, they were kicked out of the G8, so it became a G7. And we know that Putin is not coming to the G20. He's sending Foreign Minister Lavrov instead. So that, that says something. And Dr. Friedman, moving on to the Middle East, could you please set the scene for Russia in the Middle East uh, in historical context? Because we know that today's Russian Federation is just an extension of previously Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. And you have written beautiful books on the subject of Soviet policy in the Middle East. Could you please describe? Yeah, if I can talk about Putin, I think Putin has three goals, as I see it. One is to restore Russia as a great power. And as part of his efforts to get a multipolar world instead of a unipolar world dominated as he sees it by the United States. His second goal is not to just be an oil and natural gas exporter, but also to export high tech things like nuclear reactors, major rail systems, that kind of thing. And, you know, he's selling the reactors to Turkey's or they're already on the third reactor of a four reactor set to Egypt. Uh, serious discussions with Jordan about this. And of course, for a long time already, uh, the Bushir nuclear reactor system in Iran. Mm -hmm. So this is what he's trying to do as a second goal. And third goal, and I think less important, is to fight radical Islam. Because as you know, in the Chechen war, while the first Chechen war was basically a nationalist conflict against Russia, it had become Islamized by the second Chechen war. And this is still a threat, you know, 20 million Muslims reproducing themselves rather rapidly in Russia while the Slavs are not. And especially now with a lot of the best and brightest leaving Russia, he's got to worry about the, the rise of Islam. But I think we know from the Syrian war, when he said he was fighting ISIS and Islamic radicals, he was really fighting the non-jihadi opposition of Hafiz Assad. So that's why I put that down as the third goal. So we've seen in the past few months with Saudi Arabia making decisions to, to draw closer to Russia and to Putin, but then also Russia's relationship with Iran. Can you explain what that means for Russia to to become allies with Saudi Arabia, but also have these ties with Iran and, and what those implications could be. Yeah, one of Putin's goals, unlike the Soviet period, when the Soviets had broken relations with Israel in 1967 and didn't really restore full relations until 1991, Putin prides himself to be able to talk to everybody. He talks to the Israelis on the one hand, and he talks to Hamas, which is dedicated to the destruction of Israel, on the other hand. So he cooperates with the Saudis because they have a mutual interest in keeping the oil price up. And uh, as the Saudis said, the fact that Russia benefits from this is incidental because uh, Mohammed bin Salman has got this project called Saudi Arabia 2030 where he wants to industrialize and modernize the country and he needs money for that. And I can understand actually the Saudi point of view because 
oil prices dropped way down just a couple of years ago. So you make hay while the sun shines. So now they're up. Let's try to keep them up. Now, the mistake there, of course, was he announced this just before the midterms, which is a real slap at Biden and Biden's not going to forget it. But nonetheless, I understand where the Saudis are are coming from. In the case of Iran, it has to be exceedingly embarrassing for the Russians to have to import drones and missiles from Iran, which indicates their military industrial complex isn't doing very well. Now, we've seen a precedent for this, by the way. After the Georgia invasion in in, uh, 2008, again, Russian drones didn't work very well. So they imported drones from Israel in return for a promise not to give the Syrians the SAM 300s any aircraft missiles. So something's gone wrong in the Russian drone production capability. So that obviously somebody's going to have to clean that up at some point. And could you please describe uh, Russia-Israel relationship? Because Israel is not willing to step in fully on Ukraine's side because of some regional situation with Russia, but our listeners might not know what it is. Okay. You know, Israel in some ways is like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. They all have close relations with the U.S., but none of these have backed the U.S. other than rhetorically in General Assembly votes, which really, quite honestly, don't count for very much, despite what the U.S. State Department says and why. In the case of Israel, it's fairly clear there are two primary reasons. One, the Iranians are allied with Assad of Syria and are trying to move in arms as well as soldiers and established bases in Syria from which they can attack the Israelis. The Israelis already have problems on their northern border with another Iranian proxy, Hezbollah. They certainly don't want this to happen in Syria. So the deal between the Russians and the Israelis has been, we'll give you a free hand to attack the Iranian positions in Syria, but don't try to overthrow Assad. And that worked. Uh, Netanyahu, the then and now again prime minister, established an extremely close relationship with Putin. And that's the deal. More than half a dozen meetings back and forth. Now, the other issue, which doesn't get as much prominence in the press, is that the ethos of Israel is the ingathering of Jews from around the world. You know, 150, 200,000 Jews in Russia, they're afraid the spigot is going to be turned off. And if you look at what happened just in the last few months, when Bennett gave way to Lapid in terms of the Israeli prime minister, and Lapid has been much more forthright in denouncing what the Russians are doing in war crimes, genocide, etc., and the Russians have responded by threatening to close the Jewish agency in, in Russia, which handles the immigration of Jews from Russia to Israel. So those are the two primary reasons. I would like to dig into the Syrian relationship a little bit more with with Russia. So the the al-Assad regime came into power in the 70s, I believe, and ties were established with the Soviet Union. They built the ports in Tartus and Latakia. And there has been a historical relationship there with the Soviet Union and now Russia. And I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on where Syria fits into this evolution of foreign policy under the Putin regime, because we saw in 2014 the annexation of Crimea 
And then in 20, I guess that would have been 2014, 2016, when, when Russia first started to go into Syria, and then we start to see 2018 and, and more, more of a presence. What did Syria mean for Russia and Russia's foreign policy? It's interesting. Russia and Syria have been long-term allies, not always easy allies. Mm -hmm. But in 1975, back in the days of the Soviet Union, when the Syrians invaded Lebanon, this was not what the Russians wanted at the time. Mm -hmm. And the Russians were very unhappy with it. And it clashes with Arafat. Because in Soviet times, they were trying to build anti-imperialist Arab unity. (laughs) And the Syrians often acted against it. But the real clincher for the Soviet-Syrian relationship came in 1979. When the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, Syria was the only Arab country to really loudly support the Soviet Union and was very well rewarded with weapons, etc. Now, that good relationship lasted until roughly midway through the Gorbachev era in 1988-89 when Assad, the senior, was told that you have to solve your problems with Israel politically and not by war. And then Gorbachev cut off arms sales to a certain extent. And then, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed. And it wasn't really until Putin's era in 2005 with the visit, you know, visits back and forth to Syria that he waived something like 83% of the Syrian debt to the USSR. And the relationship began to develop. During the Syrian civil war, of course, in 2011 and onwards, and it's still continuing, the Russians protected Syria in the UN from charges of poison gas and mistreatment, etc., much to the chagrin of the United States. But Assad was steadily losing ground, both to a jihadist and a non-jihadist opposition. So by 2015, the Syrians were getting pretty desperate. So And the Iranians who were backing them were getting pretty desperate. So not collusion, but cooperation between the Syrians and the uh, Russians brought a Russian military presence into Syria. Now, this was, I think, one of the biggest mistakes ever for the Obama administration, who said that, oh, the Syrians are getting in a quagmire. Not really, because they were out of this they got, first of all, a central position in Syria militarily with their SAM 400s, a new air base at Hamanim, an expanded naval base at Tartus, and really established itself in the center of the Middle East. And American allies, whether it's the Saudis or the UAE or Israel, noticed this, noticed the lack of American response, began to hedge a little bit toward the Russians. I've already discussed the situation with Israel and why the Israelis did it. But the Saudis and the uh, UAE also, you know, is the U.S. really going to protect us and the judgment, etc. And that's that's pretty well stuck until the present day. And that explains why these countries have not backed the U.S. I mean, the Israelis have provided a field hospital and flak jackets, etc. The Saudis, after humiliating Biden, with, have now given $400 million or promised $400 million in humanitarian aid, etc. But still, they continue to trade. You know, oligarchs are doing very well, especially in the UAE with their yachts and the Saudis, and they cooperate with Russia on keeping oil prices high. What does this say about future U.S. foreign relations in the Middle East 
What do you see the future of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East in relation to Russia being a, a major player there? Well, I mean, the Russians have lost, first of all, Russians get their influence by oil cooperation, natural gas cooperation, and they've just signed a big deal, uh, at least a memo of, of understanding with the Iranians on this. They have been traditionally, as I mentioned, under Putin, close to the Israelis. But where does it leave the United States? As I've argued and continue to argue that the way the Russians got their strong position in the Middle East was acts of omission or commission by the United States. Can, if I may, just list a few of these. Yes, please. The invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq removed two of Iran's major enemies, the Taliban until very recently, and of course, Saddam Hussein. That made Iran, unintended consequence perhaps, a lot stronger, which got the Saudis worried, and it got the Israelis worried, and it got the UAE worried. That's why those three are now cooperating, either tacitly or openly in the case of the UAE, together. Then came the famous red line promise by Mr. Obama, said, if the Syrians use poison gas, we will react. Well, they did use poison gas, and the U.S. didn't really react. My, my thinking on this is that that's when Putin got the measure of Obama, because just a few months later, he took over Crimea, if you remember. And again, the U.S. did very little except for some sanctions, which did hurt the natural gas production and oil production, but still weren't all that serious. And then the Russians get involved in, in Syria in 2015 militarily. Again, the U.S. doesn't respond and on and on. And I, I want to get your take on our sanctions policy towards Russia. That seems to currently be our first reaction. And I, I do believe that sanctions are working and they are they are a tool that we can use. But do you think that they are necessary in how we are utilizing them? And is there a different way that we could be using sanctions in conjunction with something else? I would like to hear your take on, on that. Well, sanctions are usually the policy when you don't want to use military force. Right. Actually, since you're kind enough to ask me, I did my first book on this, how the Soviet Union used sanctions against China and Yugoslavia and Albania because they weren't willing to use real military force against any of them. It's a way of showing displeasure. But to Mr. Biden's credit, he has kept a unified NATO, which many of us were worried about wouldn't be the case under Trump, who was sort of a buddy of Putin. So, you know, if the U.S. can continue to arm and help rebuild Ukraine and gets the Europeans to help in a big way and maybe persuades the Germans who have not sent their tanks and should have to help Ukraine, I mean, that, that will help. And you, the more you build up Ukraine, basically the weaker comparatively Russia will get. And I think a combination of the sanctions, which will bite over time, and the um, unity of Europe in rebuilding energy infrastructure for Ukraine and continuing to help militarily, I think is a good policy. And would that weakness of Russia lead to more retrenchment in the Middle East to reducing its footprint in Syria because it can't really fight on both fronts in Ukraine and in Syria with its quagmire of issues? Well, they're already pulling some stuff back from Syria. And the dynamic there may be that the more that they pull back, the more the Iranians are going to try to move in. Although they, the Iranians have their own domestic problems now in a big way. 
But uh, I was asked this very good question at the panel the other day as to how the Israelis would respond. Gee, Iran's big enemy, and they're now helping Russia. Is, is Israel going to help Ukraine? Right. And for the reasons I gave, they probably won't, but I think they will step up their bombing of the Iranian position. So you're going to have a real proxy war in Syria now, even more than you've had before between the Israelis and the Syrians. And will China also fill in the Russian vacuum to some extent? Because they, they also have some cooperation level and no limits partnership. There is still a lot of rivalry in the Middle East, in Africa, and Russia is losing that battle as I see it. Well, I think that, that's a good point. But I think you also have to look at Central Asia. As Russia essentially weakens, Chinese influence is going to grow in Central Asia. Because, I mean, that's the centerpiece of the Belt and Road yeah. system. And it was supposed to go through Ukraine also, by the way, at some point. And that is worth watching. Now, if I'm a Central Asian, if I'm a Kazakh or an Uzbek, then I have to worry a little bit because you don't like the Russian pressure on you, but you're a little worried about the Chinese. I mean, I heard uh, here at the conference a Kazakh woman telling me that there's an old slogan in Kazakh that the Russian bridle is of leather, but the Chinese bridle is of iron. And this is obviously horsemen in, in Central Asia who talk about that. So I think they're trying to play both sides off. But if Russia weakens too much, that means China's influence will grow unless they can count on the U.S. I mean, the Kazakhs have tried to play U.S., Russia, and China off against everybody. But unless the U.S. gets a bit more involved in Central Asia, it's going to be a problematic, I think, because inevitably the economic pull of China while Russia's weakened economically is going to make these countries gravitate or toward China. In order to counter Chinese influence in Central Asia, what could the U.S. be prioritizing or what are some of the policies that we should be implementing to maybe strengthen those relationships? Well, if they weren't all autocracies, then I would start <laughs> talking about non-NATO ally status. I mean, there has been quite a military exercises in cooperation, but I think maybe some of the countries in Central Asia might be more willing to have that kind of relationship with the U.S. now than they had before, if only to counterbalance the Chinese on one side and the Russians on the other. And as Russia weakens and China fills the spot in Central Asia, in the Middle East and in Africa, does the United States need to make it clear to Russia that maybe it's time to cooperate because China is not really Russia's friend? Well, you know, the Chinese policy during the war has been a lot of rhetoric in support of Russia. But, you know, Chinese companies have not invested in Russia uh, because obviously the corruption is one issue and the American sanctions are the other issue. And why the big, you know, telephone company is pulled out of Russia. So, it's, it's an open question. Let's, let's put it that way. I guess turning into more domestic Russian politics, Putin has created an environment in which he has no successor. The, the institutions that support him don't tell him all of the information he needs to hear. It's kind of what we see in autocratic regimes. The, the, the boss doesn't get the truth. Yeah. Where do we see, or, or I guess what, what in your opinion, the strength of the Putin regime has obviously been shaken by the war in Ukraine. What is next for domestic Russian 
the political regime in Russia? That's a $64 question. And I wish I had a, a way of penetrating Putin's brain and that of the elite around him. So this would only be speculation. Right now, most of the criticism is coming from the right. And you've got to be tougher, you know. But I, as somebody who has studied Russia for decades and decades, I have to feel sorry for the Russians because they're cutting themselves off from Europe. And somebody's going to wake up and say, you're cutting your links to Europe, and Russia is basically a European civilization, and pivoting to Asia, and you're going to become essentially a vassal of China down the road. Is that really in Russia's interest? And I think that's the real question. And whether the elite realizes this or not, they certainly don't want to be junior partners to China, but they're well on the way of becoming junior partners to China. That's the real worry. And a lot of the best and the brightest have left Russia. And it's great for IT, for Kazakhstan and Georgia and other places, but it's going to hurt Russia in the long run. And you add to that the population going down that somebody somewhere in the elite may wake up and say, hey, this is not the direction. Now, whether they can persuade Putin to change policy remains to be seen. I think it's interesting that you mentioned the the far right being the basically the the not the motivating force, but the the critical force right now against Putin's actions. Um, For some of our listeners that may not understand what their rhetoric or ideology is, could you expand a little bit on what's motivating them to critique Putin? Well, I mean, if they believed, as Putin did, on a greater Russia, and a greater Russia means taking over Ukraine, probably taking over northern part of Kazakhstan, if nothing else. And if I were in the Baltics, I would worry about that too. So this is a wake-up call. Yeah, Yeah. it's a wake-up call. And, you know, the elite woke up in 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They were back to the 17th century borders of Russia. And that has to be very hard for the elite to take. And so therefore, as remember what the Tsar said, that which stops growing starts to die. So there's this impulse, and you add the church impulse, which wasn't there under the Soviet Union, which has a, a Moscow, the third Rome, sort of this messianic impulse, and Putin has been trying to play that up for what it's worth as well. Then you have the elite that really wants to expand, and you don't have the, the checks and balances on them, and that's the problem. This um, this narrative of the third Rome, of Russia being the, the bastion of traditional Christian values and, and, and exporting that to the rest of the world. How resonant do you think that's actually with Russians? Or is that just a narrative that's just talked about? What, what is the reception of that inside of Russia? Well, I think among the elite, Putin's elite, they, they sort of buy into that. Mm-hmm. Among the Russians who are, who are having trouble importing French cheese and that kind of stuff, <laughs> I think it resonates less. But, you know, Putin plays on this for what it's worth. I mean, he's also protecting Christians in the Middle East. I mean, when, when he went into Syria, this was one of the reasons he said he wanted to protect the Christian minority mm-hmm. in Syria. And he's managed to persuade the Israelis to turn over church properties in Jerusalem back to Russia. So this is pretty big for him. And would you say that the next Russian leader, if he comes from the right wing sort of opposition, would he be more focused on Russia's near abroad, as it called northern Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Belarus, and expanding somewhere else? Or as they would try to double down in the Middle East since Russia already has some ground there? 
Well, I don't see them withdrawing from Syria, but I do see them, just as you said, trying to consolidate Russia proper and come back and fight another day when they're stronger, whether that will work given the pervasive corruption in the country that we've seen. I mean, how do you send troops into combat, you know, without winter clothing, without boots, training? And then, you know, I used to be, I used to be an armored infantry officer and you don't string your tanks down 40 miles <laughs> because what you do then is you're asking for somebody to knock out the first tank and the last tank so they can't maneuver and the rest are sitting ducks. So this is poor strategy and poor preparation. So they have a lot of rebuilding to do. I mean, it's not as bad perhaps after the Crimean War when the country went through this massive rebuilding after Russia lost in, on its own territory in the Crimea to the British and the French and the Sardinians. But it's, uh, it's going to require a lot of rebuilding. Hopefully, there'll be some democracy in that, but I'm not holding my breath. is going to be a little bit outside the Middle East because Russia has started to seemingly, I know the war in Ukraine kind of happened in conjunction with this, but started to expand into Africa. And so we see them starting to show up in Sudan, Central African Republic, Mali, and, and kind of across that Central Western Africa plain. Do you think that do you think that was an overextension of foreign policy? Do you think that Putin had a strategy or a plan for doing that? What is some of the insight that you, that you Russia have? Russia is a great power. You have to listen to us all over the world. That's behind what they're doing in, in Africa. And of course, it's the Wagner Group in Mali, which is plausible denial. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. And we saw the case in Syria, you know, where the Wagner Group was used to attack U.S. position and it was a disaster for them. So this reliance on Wagner, we saw it in 2014 in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine. We've seen it in Syria. We saw it in Libya. We've seen it now in, in Africa. Do you think it's working for Russia? Well, well it didn't work in Libya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Turks and their Bakhtiar drones backed up the central UN-recognized Libyan government against General Haftar. That didn't work. In Syria, hasn't worked well. It's an open question in Mali. You know, the Malians first depended on the French, and that didn't work. And now they're trying with the Russians, and it remains uh, how effective they're going to be. Uh, we'll see. In Ukraine, apparently, at least from the reports that I've seen, they're fighting a bit more effectively than they have elsewhere. But it may just be the elite of the Wagner group, who are also recruiting people right out of jail to fight. Yes, I see that Wagner is not very effective. They're trying. They don't have a lot of their force in Ukraine. They, they tried to draw down their contingents in Mali and also in Syria. And they're throwing those people from jail, basically, to kind of find Ukrainian positions and then correct fire on them. But also all of the Russian generals that we saw in Ukraine, they had some experience in Syria. And right now Putin is shifting them around and he thinks that he is going to achieve success. What happened? Why are those generals not prepared for a war after Syria? Well, the basic reason is they didn't have any real opposition in Syria. I did a piece a few years ago, if anybody's interested, in the um, U.S. Marine Corps Middle East Studies Bulletin called Pushing on an Open Door, Russian Entry into the Middle East. 
And, you know, if nobody's firing back at you seriously, you can make a lot of progress. Nobody's shooting down your planes, you can make a lot of progress. But now you're fighting against motivated Ukrainians, and it's a different ballgame. So the generals who have the experience in Syria may not be relevant to the Ukrainian war. Yeah, the combat in Syria was not on the ground. I like what we are seeing happening in Ukraine. And for all of the um, military showcases and, and joint operations that they do with China. And, and it is all planned. It's all, I mean, the U.S. does it as well. But the Russian troops that are fighting in Ukraine, none of them have seen significant combat or have any of that experience. And so I think we're seeing the ramifications of that and also the massive corruption of funding the Russian military. Like you said earlier, they just don't have, um, we don't see the, the winter clothing. We would like the, the equipment has been broken down or it's from the World War II era. And, and we're just seeing a, a massive breakdown in, or maybe not a breakdown, but just the cracks in the Russian military foundation that we didn't imagine would be there. And Dr. Friedman, in previous uh, wars in the Middle East where Western equipment competed with Soviet equipment, like the war of Yom Kippur most prominently, where Western equipment kind of won the war despite the overwhelming majority of Soviet equipment. Do you see that Russian equipment, has it been advancing from Soviet period? Is it uh, quality versus price? Is it better than Western equipment? Because, of course, it's quality terms. It's less. But if you just do quality versus and price, is it on par? Well, you know, the selling arms is second only to selling oil and natural gas for the Russians for their economy. And, you know, the Indonesian decision not to buy the Sukhois uh, that was made recently. Now, was this because the Russian equipment didn't do very well in Ukraine, or was it because the Indonesians were afraid of U.S. sanctions? It's very hard to measure where Jojo, the, the leader of, of Indonesia, made this decision, but I think people are going to think twice or three times about Russian equipment now, mm -hmm. since it did so poorly, and they're going to be more anxious to get U.S. and NATO equipment. Do you think the Russian prioritization of hypersonic missiles or, or these these weapon systems that they put on display as being very sophisticated and very advanced. Do you think there's any teeth or any power behind those programs? Do you think it is kind of what we're seeing just just for show? Should those weapon systems be a concern for the United States and, and even... Yeah, interesting question. In fact, there was a panel on this here at the conference and um, a PhD candidate gave his presentation on this, and it was fairly convincing, in which he argued that the Russians are developing these things for status purposes, primarily. I mean, the U.S. has this overwhelming conventional superiority, precision-guided missiles over the Russians. So how do the Russians respond to this? They have to show they're still tough. And look, we have the hypersonic missile, and the Americans don't. Though the U.S. is also developing it, how effective the hypersonic missile would be in combat is another question. But it's very showy. And again, Russia is a great power. Uh, you have to take into consideration Russian interests when anything happens in the world. Hypersonic missile is a good way of backing that up. And I, I think maybe leading into the nuclear program as well, for our listeners, giving a little bit of context of Russian nuclear policy and how they use that to either showcase this power or how they use it to manipulate decision making of other people or things like that and kind of give us a little bit of uh, context around Again, that. Again, the Russians are conventionally 
inferior. So the nuclear weapons are their weapons of last resort. But I think the Ukraine war is a great example of what they're threatening to use one day and then saying they're not going to use it the next day. And the Chinese are telling them. Don't do that. (laughs) The problem with a nuclear weapon, at least as I understand it, not being a specialist in it, is that if you fire it off, the radiation, especially in Ukraine, can blow right back into Russia. Do you want to take that risk? And that's an open question. And it might make you more of a pariah than you already are. And do the dictators or semi-dictatorial leaders in the Middle East respect Putin for standing up to the West, being this tough leader, and also having his own army, weapons, and challenging the whole West, as it's say? Well, when you get down to it, the bottom line is if Iran attacks Saudis or UAE in a big way, only the United States is going to come to there protection. But you're hedging a little bit with the Russians just in case. Mm -hmm. And you're forming military ties with the Israelis just in case. I mean, the UAE just signed this anti-aircraft missile and anti-missile system deal with the Israelis because, you know, the Houthis who are proxies of Iran have fired missiles, you know, into the UAE. So they needed something to stop them. But when push comes to shove, the U.S. is there. But in the interim, you hedge a little bit with the Russians, and that's what they're doing. But they're autocrats. I mean, everybody in the Middle East is an autocrat, with the exception of the Israelis, and maybe a semi-exception of Turkey. But the Turks under Erdogan are becoming more and more autocratic anyway. And we'll see if the election holds in next year in Turkey. But Turkey is a great example of a country that is trying to play both sides. I mean, look, they've, they've closed the straits to Russian military ships unless they're returning to base under the Montreal Convention, which gives them the power. So that's helpful. And they've done negotiating for the grain deal, mm-hmm. which is helpful to the world, actually, not just to Russia and, and Ukraine. Oh, and I should mention also, they have supported return of Crimea to Ukraine yes, yes. and are providing these Bakhtiar missiles to Ukraine. All this is on one side. But on the other side... Lots of Russian money is coming into Turkey. Uh, the Turks are, the Russians are building these four nuclear reactor complex for Turkey. Russian yachts are in Turkish waters. Uh, oligarchs have a good time in Turkey. I mean, it's the one place where the Russians can go for tourism to a certain extent that helps the Turkish economy. And for a while, this Mir deal, deal was going until the banks realized they faced American sanctions. So, you know, you have some things they're doing which helps Russia, some things they're doing which hurts Russia. So one of the things that I'm, as we talked earlier, that I'm working on is a paper of trying to decide whether or not Erdogan of Turkey is a net asset or a net liability to the Russians, given the Turkish-Russian clashes in Syria and Libya, uh, also in, uh, in Azerbaijan, Armenia. So. to ask you about the Libyan war because it's kind of been in the background of all the news right now but as you mentioned before the Wagner group has been fighting there and supporting General Haftar and what is the situation there like right now because China also tried to step in a little bit and it's also probably on the end of Russia's interests right now they're trying to maintain base in Syria and Libya is on the end of their thinking the Russians actually tried to maintain ties with the central government and Haftar. I mean, before Gaddafi was overthrown, 
the Russians had $9 billion deal with the Libyans for arms and for this giant railroad between Benghazi and Tripoli and so forth. Well, that went down the drain. So I'd like to rebuild that. I think they were pushing for a unity government between the two. Uh, and Haftar becomes defense minister, and then he restores these arms deals. But uh, the Libyans have not gotten their act together, and they're fighting again, and the Turks are strong, more strongly on the side of, of the Libyan central government, UN-backed, I should mention, central government, and they have signed this deal for dividing their waters between them mm-hmm. so they can get the natural gas. And that, interestingly enough, plays out where the Egyptian-Turkish rapprochement has essentially ended because the Egyptians are very worried because you have some Muslim Brotherhood people active in, in, in Libya and the Turks are effectively backing the same Muslim Brotherhood group which General Sisi overthrew in Turkey. So there's that, that has not, there's supposed to be elections, uh, United Government, all that has failed. There are clashes now and the Russians, as you mentioned, have other things on their mind now. And that's one of the reasons that they wanted to give it to the Wagner Group, mm-hmm. because it's you know plausible deniability. And right. also maintain ties with the central government. Right. Of right. I guess one last question, I and mean, we can kind of put a bow on all of on all of what we've talked about. Is there any space for the United States and Russia to have conversations to come back to the negotiating table? Is there any chance for diplomacy to end this war? Is there is there any way that we we can rely on some of these relationships in the Middle East? Or is there any hope for a diplomatic solution um, to, in regards to Ukraine? Or are we just going to have to see how, how it ends? Well, my concern is that the U.S. will talk to Russia over the heads of the Ukrainians. Now, the U.S. official position is, no, we will not. The Ukrainians have to be part of any discussion. There are people on the left in the United States, however, which says, you know, you got to negotiate because otherwise it's going to escalate into nuclear war. But if you essentially have a ceasefire or freeze with Russians still occupying chunks of Ukrainian territory, well, that does is give the Russians a chance to rebuild and attack later. So you've got to see this thing through to the end. And what some people in the United States don't understand is Ukraine is really doing America's job for us against, and I say this as a former U.S. Army officer, currently a professor, but, you know, every tank that the Ukrainians destroy is one less tank that the U.S. has to face, or every artillery piece that the Ukrainians destroy is one less. And, you know, you have this kind of thing. And when the best and brightest leave Russia, that's a net balance. You know, if you're playing zero-sum game here, it's a net plus for the United States. And all this we have to thank the Ukrainians for. And it's very interesting that midterms, fortunately, whether or not you're a liberal Democrat or a right-wing Republican, the fact that the Senate is now held by the Democrats. But a lot of the, the Trumpists who were raising questions about aid to Ukraine and McCarthy said no more blank checks for Ukraine. And fortunately, the Senate Majority Leader McConnell said the cost of not helping Ukraine is much higher than the cost of helping Ukraine. I think that those who wanted to cut support for Ukraine really lost in the midterms, which I think is is for Ukrainian relations. Now, on the final note, maybe there's a lesson here 
that Ukraine, it's time to bring Ukraine not only into the EU, but into NATO also as a result of this. I mean, one could argue that in 2008, the decision was the wrong one to sort of postpone Georgia and Ukraine. Well, Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for your questions. These are really good questions. Awesome. We We love to hear that. We, we would be happy to have you on the podcast in the future for some of your work that's coming out. I cannot yeah. thank you enough for your presence here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It is wonderful that we had this chance meeting. Yeah, yes. so like, <laughs> I don't know if Misha told you, but we were sitting there and, and all of us saw your, or I saw your name tag and I was like, huh. And I was like, I recognize that name. And then I like sat there for a second and I was like, wait a second. Is that the Dr. Dr. Friedman? And like, I like got out my phone real quick and looked and I was like, and then I think at the same time, like everybody had the realization and we were like, man, this is just destiny, destiny, destiny. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 